Awesome. Um, my name is Justin Clark, and it is um, just a privilege to be here with you guys tonight. Um, I'm going to go through some announcements, and then Pastor Matt's going to come teach, and then we'll all sing together in worship. So welcome. If this is your first time to Revolution, I'm going to go through a couple of announcements. Um, first and most importantly is this is, brace yourselves, be careful, um, it's the last night we're going to meet here in this building ever. So I know that makes you guys all really sad and disappointed. And we're excited, so the things might not fall on your head. Um, so starting next Sunday night, um, we will be meeting at Christ Community Church, which um, if you guys aren't familiar with um, Portsmouth or that church where they might be, they're on um, 25th and Thomas Avenue on the corner. It is 25th Street and Thomas Avenue. Um, it's just down the block from SOMC, from the hospital. So if you guys have questions about where that is, um, see me, see Pastor Matt, see Ryan. We'll be more than happy to get you guys directions. We'll have stuff all over Facebook this week. So in case you forget or your friends forget, um, if you come here next week, it's not that we don't like you. We're just not going to be here. So um, we will um, look forward to worshiping with you guys. And just ask you guys to join with us right now in prayer um, for the summer, because as, as the summer moves forward at Christ Community, we're going to be putting a lot of things together to, to basically relaunch, so to speak, in the fall with, as Shawnee State comes back, just to be prepared to really be ready to be in a position um, as the Lord sees fit to minister to folks in this community. So we're going to be kind of moving around in the building at Christ Community because everything isn't in place how we'd like it to be or how they'd like it to be, but we're able to go ahead and get that move happening now so that we don't have to stay in this building where it's really hot and things are falling from the ceiling and things like that. So just be aware that when we move in, it's not going to be like everything's perfect, but we're working towards that and we're going to need your guys' help with that. So we appreciate um, you laboring in that with us. And then um, the other announcement I have is that um, Amy Lambert, um, and if you guys don't know who Amy Lambert is, don't worry because I didn't either until a little bit ago. Um, Amy Lambert is coming to Portsmouth, Ohio this fall. Um, it's a partnership with Revolution and a lot of other churches and organizations here in the community. Um, we're working to put together a community event, and um, I know she recently spoke at Celebrate Recovery here in town, I think, and just did a fantastic job, and, and she... Um, She's a recovered addict. She's got a ministry um, that we are really excited about supporting. And so that event's going to take place this fall. But we actually get a meet with, um, with her and some folks involved in planning that next Saturday. So just be praying about that event because that's the type of event that potentially could reach thousands and thousands of people here in this community. So it's not unique to Revolution. There are lots of folks partnering in that effort. Uh, but we're just excited to be a part of that team. Um, and we just really ask you guys to pray in that with us as we help prepare um, for the Lord to move when she comes here in, in the fall. So with that, I'm going to pray, and then we will get started. So dear Heavenly Father, we just thank you for your grace and your mercy, and though sometimes it is hard to recognize why you see fit that we meet in a building where the, the conditions aren't necessarily desirable, we know that you saw fit for us to be here every day that we were here, and you also see fit for us to take this next step as a church as we grow, as we move to yet another location. And we just thank you, Lord, that in almost five years you've been completely faithful in providing a place for us, even when there were times where we didn't know where we were going to be or how we were going to be having church together as a community, but you saw fit to find us a place and to deliver that place and to make that happen for us. And we are confident that you will continue to deliver that for us, that you will continue to dwell with us in the form of the Holy Spirit, that you will just love us, pour into us, and just continue to give us opportunities to do the same things with other people here in this community. We thank you for your grace and mercy. It's in your name we pray. Amen. How are we doing, Revolution? 
last Sunday night on the set of Saw 4. I, there's part of me that wants to yell um, something about Jigsaw not getting us. Um, but then at that point, the roof would collapse with my luck. So I'm not going to do that. Um, we are just going to finish off the Gospel of Mark. And so if you want to go to Mark 15, um, that is where we're going. Um, and we're going to polish off Mark tonight. And we're going to start a new series next week that we've been hinting at over the last couple of weeks. What does it mean to be a Christian? We're going to jump to 1 John and, and work through part of 1 John there. So if you're in the Blue Bibles, that's page 611. Okay? And um, we're going to go all the way through to 16. Um, eight. We're not going to go beyond that, and we'll talk about why that is here in a minute. Um, but we're going to go from 15.1 to 16.8. So if you're in the Blue Bible, that's page 611. Now, if you do not have a Bible or the Bible you own, you do not, you're not comfortable with, that Blue Bible that is there or around you, that is yours to, to keep and take with you. So let's jump into 15.1. Let's polish off the Gospel of Mark. Uh, very early in the morning, the leading priests, the elders, and the teachers of religious law, uh, so basically the entire Jewish, Jewish leadership, the entire high council, met to discuss their next step. They bound Jesus, led him away, and took him to Pilate, the Roman governor. Now, this in and of itself is a big deal because Jews did not trust Romans. They did not like Romans. They looked down upon Romans. So for them to take Jesus to Pilate means that they are willing to sacrifice everything they believe in in order to get him. I mean, they have that much hatred for him at this point. And they take him away at, day, at daybreak because that's when Romans got up to work. Roman citizens, Roman officials would begin their work day as soon as the sun rose. They did that not because they were they worked particularly hard. They did that so they could quit work around noon and spend the rest of their day on leisure activities. That's just how they pictured life. And verse 2, Pilate asked Jesus, Are you the king of the Jews? This was a political question. He's not asking them a religious question. King of the Jews is short for Messiah. Messiah is short for rebel. Are you a rebel? Are you a traitor to the Roman Empire? That is what he is asking Jesus. And Jesus replied, you have said it. In other words, well, that's what you're going to say. He's not admitting he's a rebel. He's just saying, this is how this is going to come out. Verse 3. Then the leading priest kept accusing him of many crimes. And Pilate asked him, aren't you going to answer them? What about all these charges they are bringing against you? But Jesus said nothing, much to Pilate's surprise. Remember we saw last week in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus prayed, your will, not mine, be done. He is consigned to that will. Verse 6, now it was the governor's custom each year during the Passover celebration to release one prisoner, anyone the people requested. One of the prisoners at that time was Barabbas. That means son of Abba, son of God, actually, ironically. A revolutionary or a people who a person who'd actually been leading armed insurrection, right? A revolutionary who committed murder in an uprising. The Greek actually says the uprising. We don't know what uprising that is, but Mark's readers would have known. There were many of these throughout Israel during this time when they would try to try to bring an armed rebellion against the Romans. 
Uh, and the crowd went to Pilate and asked him to release a prisoner as usual. Would you like me to release to you this king of the Jews? Pilate asked, for he realized by now that the leading priests had arrested Jesus out of envy. So he's trying to play the people against the priests because Pilate hated all of them. But at this point, the leading priest stirred up the crowd to demand the release of Barabbas instead of Jesus. Pilate asked them, Then what should I do with this man you call king of the Jews? They shouted back, Crucify him. Why? Pilate demanded. What crime has he committed? But the mob roared even louder, Crucify him. Now this is huge. Um, for a Jew to call for the crucifixion of another Jew is unprecedented. We do not have an example of this anywhere else in ancient literature. Typically, Jews did not wish crucifixion on their worst enemy. Slaves in the Roman Empire did not wish crucifixion on their worst enemy. And what's even more amazing is remember this. When Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a donkey, they greet him as a king. They are shouting at him. They are, they are waving palm branches, which if you, if you remember, waving palm branches was not a sign of peace. It was a sign of revolution, armed revolution. They were greeting Jesus as a liberating king, as the leader of an armed revolution. Once he gives himself up to be imprisoned, they turn on him. Once Jesus loses his immediate value for their desires, they turn on him. That never happens anymore, now does it? Right? So, to pacify the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He ordered Jesus flogged with a lead-tipped whip and then turned him over to the Roman soldiers to be crucified. Now, the original readers of Mark Gospel knew what it meant to be flogged. So to be said to be flogged with a lead-tipped whip means they went out of their way to select the nastiest flogging they could find. Now, if you were to tur be turned over to be flogged to the Roman authorities, that means you were to be whipped. And if you were to be whipped under Roman law, if you were not a Roman citizen, the person doing the whipping could whip you as long as they wanted to. And typically what they would do is they would chain you to a rock, a large stone, and they would whip you until all the flesh was off your back and you could actually see the bone and entrails. Most people did not survive that. That's what, that's what Pilate has ordered Jesus to undergo. Verse 16, the soldiers took Jesus into the courtyard of the governor's headquarters called the Praetorium and called out the entire regiment. So they call out, they even wake people up to come watch this, is what they're saying. And they dressed him in a purple robe, which was very expensive, and they wove thorn branches into a, a crown and put it on his head. Then they saluted him and taunted, Hail, King of the Jews. And they struck him on the head with a reed stick. Now, a reed stick means like my son takes karate, he has a bow staff. It's like that hard. This is an incredibly hard staff that they are whacking him on the head with. He already is, is, is looking at torture. And they spit on him and dropped to their knees in mock worship. How do you think they're going to feel at the end of time? And when they were finally tired of mocking him, they took off the purple robe and put his own clothes on him again. Then they led him away to be crucified. 
A passerby named Simon, who was from Cyrene, was coming from the countryside just then. The soldiers forced him to carry Jesus' cross. Simon was the father of Alexander and Rufus. That means Alexander and Rufus would have been known to Mark's readers, which means the person carrying Jesus' cross in all likelihood was so moved by his children became Christians. And they brought Jesus to a place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull. You can still visit that place in Israel. If you've been to Israel, you can see it. It's very clear there is a rock formation that does look like a human skull. Ironically, it now sits above a bus station. So when you go to see it, it's standing there, and you see a bunch of people sitting there waiting to catch a bus. And what's ironic is because it's in Israel, most people are Jewish. They're not Christian. They do not recognize the significance. They get on the bus every day under the place where Jesus was crucified, never thinking about it twice. They offered him, verse 23, they offered him wine drugged with myrrh, but he refused it. So they offered him some painkiller, but he refused to take it. Then the soldiers nailed him to the cross. Now, the reason Mark points this out, they nailed him to the cross, is you did not have to be nailed to a cross. Roman custom was that typically they did not waste nails on you. Iron and metal was very precious. Typically what they would do is they would rope you to a cross and you would die of either exposure or asphyxiation. The fact that they nailed him to a cross meant they were torturing him. They were giving him extra torture for fun. They divided his clothes and threw dice to decide who would keep each piece. That means that unlike what you see on crucifixes, including my own, Jesus was naked. They stripped Jesus naked. They said his clothes, that means all of his clothes. So they stripped him naked and they gave them away. Now, in Jewish culture, this was considered a great insult. And the cross, by the way, that he would have been on, is, it would have been much lower than you're looking at me now. It would have been right here. He would have been eye level with people. And in order to keep him on the cross, I'm not trying to be nasty, but just understand this is how it was. There was a unpolished wooden knob sticking out that they would shove the anus onto to keep him on the cross. And they would reuse crosses, by the way, and crosses were usually covered in blood and urine and feces, and they would reuse those over and over again. This is what Jesus did. Now remember, he has been flogged. He has no back. So his open back, his spine, and his entrails are up against a splintered cross. And in order to speak, he would have to rub up against it in order to talk, push himself up off of that thing sticking in his anus. I'm I'm, I'm not trying to be nasty. I'm just letting you know how disgusting it was. It was 9 o'clock in the morning when they crucified him. A sign announced the charges against him. It read, the king of the Jews. So ironically, even though it is an accurate picture, it is actually a charge that is mocking him, but, the, but it was actually read correctly through the sovereignty of God. Two revolutionaries or two other true rebels were crucified, one on his right and one on his left. The people passing by shouted abuse, shaking their heads in mockery. They would have done that eye to eye with Jesus. They would have spat on him and yelled at him eye to eye. Hi, look at you now, they yelled at him. You said you were going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Well then, save yourself and come down from the cross. The leading priests and teachers of religious law also mocked him. There's a line of people walking up and they're mocking him, remember, face to face. He saved others, they scoffed, but he can't save himself. 
Let this Messiah, the King of Israel, come down from the cross so we can see it and believe him. Even the men who were crucified with Jesus ridiculed him. Now, we know that one of them later would repent, but, but both of them actually begin making fun of Jesus. At noon, verse 33, darkness fell across the whole land until 3 o'clock. There is darkness for three hours. Where else do you see darkness in the Bible? Do you remember Exodus? Judgment of God. Darkness accompanies the judgment of God. That is what's going on here. Then at 3 o'clock, Jesus called out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? At this moment... Jesus takes all of my sins, all of your sins, if you're a Christian, upon himself. And he is ripped apart from the presence of God for the only time in eternity. Some of the bystanders misunderstood and thought he was calling for the prophet Elijah. One of them ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, holding it up to him on a reed stick so he could drink. Wait, he said, let's see whether Elijah comes to take him down. That's a mocking that they're making fun of him. And then Jesus uttered another loud cry and breathed his last at, look, what, look what happens at that moment. Verse 38. And the curtain in the sanctuary of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now, if you know the Old Testament, you know that the curtain in the temple separates the Holy of Holies from people. It separates the presence of God from people. The moment Jesus takes our sins upon him and takes that punishment, that separation is gone. So that we now can approach God directly. When the Roman officer who stood facing him saw how he had died, he exclaimed, This man truly was the Son of God. I've said this before, but you need to take this into yourself. You need to take this into your own heart. Jesus did not have to be on the cross for six hours. Jesus could have taken the punishment immediately. He could have died within seconds of being put on the cross. And he would have taken our punishment. And the deed would have been done. Why does he stay on the cross for six hours? If you read the Gospels carefully, you know that after three hours, one of the revolutionaries who was making fun of him repents and and declares him to be the Son of God. Three hours later, one of the soldiers who helped kill him declares him to be the Son of God. He stood on the cross, God himself, on the cross three hours to save a terrorist and three hours to save a Roman soldier. Just to save them. That's what, he, that's what you're worth to him. Verse 40. Some women were there watching from a distance, including Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James the Younger and of Joseph, and Salome. They had been followers of Jesus and had cared for him while he was in Galilee. Many other women who had come with him to Jerusalem were also there. We know Jesus' mother was one of them. This all happened on Friday, the day of preparation, the day before the Sabbath, as evening approached. Joseph of Arimathea took a risk... He risked his entire career here and went to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Joseph was an honored member of the high council, and he was waiting for the kingdom of God to come. That means he was truly interested in what Jesus was saying. He was truly open to what Jesus was saying. Pilate couldn't believe that Jesus was dead already. Most people, if they were on a cross, were there for several days. The, The average person crucified usually died of exposure or asphyxiation. So he called for the Roman officer and asked if he had died yet. The officer confirmed that Jesus was dead. So Pilate told Joseph he could have the body. To Pilate, he's just another failed revolutionary. 
Joseph brought a long sheet of, uh, of, of linen cloth. Then he took Jesus' body down from the cross, wrapped it in the cloth, and laid it in a tomb that had been carved out of the rock. Then he rolled a stone in front of the entrance. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where Jesus' body was laid. Saturday evening, when Sabbath ended, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James, and Salome went out and purchased burial spices so they could anoint Jesus' body. So very early on Sunday morning, just at sunrise, they went to the tomb. On the way, they were asking each other, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance to the tomb? They would have to ask Roman soldiers to, to do this, and they did not want to ask Roman soldiers. Roman soldiers um, were notorious for abusing Jewish women. But as they arrived, they looked up and saw that the stone, which was very large, had already been rolled away. When they entered the tomb, they saw a young man clothed in a white robe standing on the right side. The woman was shocked, but the angel said, Don't be alarmed. You are looking for Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He isn't here. He has risen from the dead. Look, this is where they laid his body. Now go and tell his disciples, including Peter, that Jesus is going ahead of you to Galilee. You will see him there, just as he told you before he died. The woman fled from the tomb, trembling and bewildered. And they said nothing to anyone because they were too frightened. Now, they're frightened by what happened. You would be too. They loved Jesus, but they fully expected to find his body there. They did not understand any better than anyone else what he was saying when he was alive, saying that he would rise again. Now, I know that there is more there in Mark. We're not going to cover that for this. In almost all likelihood, that was not written by Mark. The, the rest of that was written by someone else after Mark, the earliest Greek documents we have do not have that longer ending. For tradition purposes, most Bibles print it there, but in all likelihood, it is not the real ending of Mark. The real ending of Mark is where the women find that he has been raised, they are terrified, and it ends there. Now, if you were a Hollywood producer, you would say, that ending sucks. Where is the happy ending? Where is Jesus? Where are the women when they turn around? They're frightened, but in the other Gospels we see that they're frightened. They turn around, there's Jesus. Mary goes up and gives him a big hug. And he says, no, 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 don't, don't, you know, don't hold on to me yet. I, I've yet to ascend to my Father. Go tell the disciples. And then he goes and he, he greets the disciples. It's great because he scares the crap out of them. He literally just pops into a locked room. It doesn't say it in there, but I'm pretty sure they wet their robes. And so then he, he talks to me and he gives them and Thomas feels. And then later he pops up on the beach and he eats fish with them. And he's with them like 40 days. And he's teaching them and he's explaining to them. And then the Holy Spirit comes. And then they fully understand everything and they can preach to everybody. And that's the happy ending. Mark ends with women terrified, cut to credits. That's it. Why? A couple things. One, Mark was the earliest gospel. Before you have Matthew, before you have Luke, way before you have John, you have Mark. So, in all likelihood, most scholars are convinced that Mark is Peter's stock sermon. Okay, now, before you think I'm long-winded, go back and look at chapter 1 to chapter 15. That's one sermon. By Peter. We're talking hours. You guys get off light, even on the set of software. Peter would go and preach Mark 1 through 15, or 16, 9. He would preach that entire thing. 
And he would end there. Why? Because the earliest Christians, the resurrection was a confirmation that Jesus was the Son of God. It was a confirmation that everything he had said was true. But the most important event to the earliest Christians was the cross. It was the death of Jesus. And if you were Jewish, as Peter and the disciples were, you looked to your master, not just for teaching, you looked to your master as an example. So when they looked to the cross, it was not just as a way to have their sins forgiven, though that is certainly there. They looked to the cross as a way of life. This is why when you go and read Acts and you see that the disciples are persecuted, they thank God that they're being persecuted. They thank God when they're beaten. They thank God when they're imprisoned. Because they think that when that happens, they know God loves them. Now today, if something bad happens to us, we do not go, wonderful, I'm suffering, God loves us. We go, I'm suffering, God hates me. Don't we? If we begin to suffer, our immediate response is, why is God doing this to me? And typically, at the back of our mind is, I'm a good person. I go to church. I occasionally give money to good causes. Some of you, anyway. I don't get drunk I don't cheat on my wife or husband. I pay my taxes. I don't kill anybody. I don't do any of that stuff. And what you're thinking is, God owes me. Right? But the earliest Christians, when they only had Mark, and yes, there were some Christians in the early church who the only New Testament book they had was Mark. Maybe for 20 years. That's all they had was Mark. And for them, the ending was the death of Jesus. And the message was, you do the same. You do the same. Now, how different is that from the culture today? I had to stop listening to Christian radio and to Christian TV because it made me angry. It makes me very, very angry. I become sinfully angry. Because when I turn on TV and I hear Christians talking, some very nice people, I'm sure, talk about how God wants to bless you. God wants to bless you. If you just give, God is going to bless you. If you just trust, God's going to bless you. If you do this, God's going to bless you. God's going to give you Some money, God's going to give you healing, God's going to give you what you want. And then I look at Mark, and the earliest Christians are saying, if you want to be a Christian, you've got to be willing to do like your master and go to the cross. The earliest Christians didn't say, God's going to bless me. The earliest Christians said, I'm going to die because of God. And they praised him for it. What's happened? You want to talk about the disconnect? 
right? Um, now, I do not blame people for wanting to be blessed by God. I do not blame people for wanting God to give them cash. I do not blame people for wanting God to give them good looks. I do not blame them for wanting God to give them a hot spouse and good health. Who doesn't want that? Everybody wants that. I understand that. I understand that desire. And I understand the desire to look at God and go, what are you doing? Right? Most of you know last summer I had a surgery. Right? And Dunham had to fill into me for a long time um, uh, for me because I couldn't preach. I could barely stand. And I had surgery. And they said the surgery went well. And then I didn't feel any better. And they're saying, oh, you got an infection from the surgery. And then the treatments for the infection didn't work. And then they said, we're going to have to have another surgery. And they did another surgery. And now last week they told me that surgery didn't work. And now they're saying I have to have it again. And they cut a three centimeter by three centimeter by three centimeter chunk out of my back. And now they're saying they may have to cut a six centimeter by six centimeter by six centimeter chunk out of my back. And then go through the same treatments I've had for the last six months all over again. And those treatments are take a knife into an open wound, cut off the dead flesh, take a chemical burn, burn it, send me home. When I walk out of the wound center, I look like I've stepped off the Darwin evolution chart because I'm like this. (laughs) I can't stand up. And my wife will tell you, I got home, and I was very, very depressed. And I was very, very angry. And I was very rude and short with her and everyone else. Don't want to talk to anybody. Just leave me alone. I can't believe I've gone through all this for nothing. It's been incredibly painful. I've you know, had to take all kinds of time off my job. And now they're telling me, Alt, control, delete, we're doing it all over again. Except this time we're doing it even worse. If God would have been there, and he wouldn't have exposed his holiness to me because then I just peed myself, but if he'd been there, I would have had some words. And in fact, I prayed. Why? What is the point of all of this? Why should I suffer needlessly for all of this nonsense. This doesn't make any sense to me. I've suffered for six months. If they got to the end of six months, I was healed up, and I could say, okay, I've gone through that. Uh, blah, 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 blah. I've deepened. I've, you know, you've humbled me. Okay. Again? I was mad. Then I started to prepare for the sermon. And I'm going through this And I'm looking at the reason the end of Mark is the way it is because early Christians saw Jesus as an example and that they'd follow him to the cross if they had to. And I realized what an incredible wuss I am. Nobody's asking me to go to the cross. But where are you at? What's your prayer? Do you pray to follow Jesus to the cross? Or do you pray 
for nothing but rainbows, unicorns, and sunshine. Here's what I've learned the hard way. If I want to grow closer to God, that's not the road I take. The road I take is pain. The road I take is not having what I want. The road I take is discomfort. The road I take is being forced to look to God because there's nothing else. When Jesus is on that cross and he is screaming, why have you forsaken me? I know that sounds terrible, but you think about the act of faith and trust embedded in that because at least he's praying to God. Most of us, when we get into trouble, even when we feel abandoned by God, we don't go to God. We go to our doctor. We go to our financial advisor. We go to bourbon, whatever. Right? God doesn't promise you anything in this life if you follow him but pain and discomfort. He does not promise you anything this side of paradise. But he does not. You go to Hebrews, and you can pull verses out of context. There's this verse that say, some have been chosen to you know, have riches and health and all this kind of stuff. And we look at that and go, yay! And then if it just stopped there, it'd be great. But then it says, but some have been chosen to be fed to the lions. And all of us are like, well, that's not me. Obviously, because I'm a big deal, I've been chosen for a life of comfort. Nope. doesn't work that way. For most of us, because we've been raised in such comfort, and we have, no matter how much we complain, no matter how much we don't have, we have been raised in comfort. When most of the world lives off a dollar a day, we've been raised in comfort. And for most of us to get closer to God, what we need, what we need, what we need is discomfort. What we need is to suffer. And I know that sounds like a really horrible, horrible prayer for your pastor to have the last Sunday that we're in the crappy building and getting ready to go, that my prayer is that you suffer. But that's what it is. And it's not just, I'm not just, I promise you, I'm not just being mean because I'm getting ready to go through more suffering and like, well, if I have to go through it, you sucker's going to have to go through it too. That's, that's not where this is coming from. It was to begin with, but it's not when I arrived here. All right? Misery really does not love company. You do not want somebody by you. I get into it because I'm too competitive. You're going to sit next to me being like, I'm going to be like, oh, man, I'm in pain. You're like, yeah, so am I. I'm like, shut up. No, you're not. I'm in more pain than you are. Right? You ever get into that? All right? Misery doesn't love company. You want people to sit there and listen and have pity on you. Right? So I don't want you to suffer. I want you to have pity on me. If i got to suffer, I'd be like, oh, poor Matt. And feel bad. But what I really want for you is to grow closer to God. Because at the end of time, that's all that matters. I want you to grow closer to God. And if to grow closer to God, that means you've got to go through heartbreak. You've got to go through physical pain. You've got to go through discipline like you've never known. You've got to go through all that. So be it. Suffer. 
If suffering leads you to the cross, suffer. If prosperity leads you to the cross, fine, prosper, and please tithe. But if it's suffering, that it takes. Because it's suffering has been good for me. Because I've been so stubborn and so arrogant. And I've needed a lot of it. And apparently God says, I need more. And I don't want more, but I'm about to get more. And he knows better than I do. Then suffer. Because a servant is not above his master. And our master suffered greatly for you. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the almost four years we have been in this building and for the three and a half years when it wasn't too bad. And we thank you that the roof hasn't collapsed. Please don't do it tonight. We thank you that everything has stood where it's supposed to be. We thank you for that. We thank you that All of us here have relatively had a pretty easy life. There's people here have had terrible things happen to them, but, you know, we're not dying of a horrible, untreatable cancer that I know of. Nobody here is is going hungry tonight when millions around the world will. We're very comfortable. We're so spoiled that if we're not seriously living like a Kardashian, we think that we're uncomfortable. And what I pray is that whatever it takes for us to get closer to you, that that happens. I don't want to sit here and think that it's going to take some catastrophe, it's going to take some physical hurt, it's going to take some emotional pain for us here to grow closer to you. But if that's what it takes, since at the end of time, all that matters is how close we are to you, so be it. May we suffer. May we all suffer. If there are people who have been chosen, like in Hebrews, to, to, to prosper, so be it. But if we have to suffer, may we suffer. Just bless that suffering so that at the end of the day, we are closer to you. We can feel you. We know that you are there. We have grown to where we love you and love others more than ourselves. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so now that I've scared you all and what I'm praying for you, you're all going to worship really hard. You're going to stand up and you're going to worship with everything you got, hoping that God will love your worship so much you'll be the one person here that prospers, right? So stand up. And we're going to worship, and that means we're going to sing. This is not a concert. This is worshiping God. These guys are not up here to play for you. They're here to lead you in worshiping Jesus Christ. We're going to sing to Jesus. The words are going to be up there, and you're going to sing. Now, much to Ryan's chagrin, this is his suffering, there's a distinct possibility we may have to be doing some acoustic services over the summer. That really chafes him. We'll get you the mandolin, man, okay? Um, That's right. You put the man in mandolin. So, because of that, then this may be the last time these guys play so loud that only Jesus can hear you for a few months. So really sing loud. Let's do it.